Now, when I'm very good and do as I am told, I'm Mama's little angel and Papa says I'm good as gold. The stars are ageless. You brought this on yourself. Some of the films I've been discussing on this series so far have been kind of obscure. I mean, even I struggled to find a copy of The Killing Kind. When I was researching this series, I was struck by the huge gap between the different eras of exploitation. While we've left behind the original hack horror era of the 60s and 70s and the exploitation films of the 80s, which really amped up the sexual weirdness of it all, what came next? The 90s had a very small and very formulaic, low-budget approach to hack horror with a tiny amount of films like the very very low-budget mummy from 1995 starring an older Patty McCormick who is most well known for playing the little vicious girl of the bad seed in the 50s and the extremely low-budget affair the landlady with the godfather's Talia Shar as a landlady with the hots for one of her tenants last episode I talked extensively about death becomes her which in the 90s is really the only standout film for me in the genre and which brought a supernatural and comedic bent to hack horror. But where did all the hags go after that? Well, television. And specifically, American Horror Story. Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, your podcast host. And in this series of the show, I'm exploring the world of one of the most undersung and weirdly commercial subgenres of horror known as hackspotation, psychobiddy horror, grand dame guignol, or simply hag horror. Throughout the previous episodes of this series, I've been looking at some of the mainstay films of the genre, classics like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Sunset Boulevard, lesser known films like Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, The Killing Kind, or Straight Jacket. Some of the episodes have been exploring the consistent themes that come up and make the genre what it is. And now it's time to enter the contemporary landscape of horror and see how storytellers today have updated the figure of the hag. It's not always going to be pretty and there's going to be some mild spoilers. And yes, I'm going to be talking primarily about a Mr. Ryan Murphy. Don't unsubscribe just yet. Stay with me. I have reasons. The anthology horror series created by Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk has now been running for, let me just check my notes, 13 years and has spawned its own spin-off show as well as a sister show, American Crime Story. 
Every season of American Horror Story follows its own storyline and they are loosely intertwined in a shared universe. Murphy employs a rotating ensemble of actors, including people like Sarah Paulson, Evan Peters, Dennis O'Hare, Emma Roberts, Francis Conroy, Jessica Lange, Kathy Bates, Angela Bassett, Lady Gaga and Kim Kardashian. I'm not going to sit here and try to convince you to watch all of American Horror Story, all 12 seasons of it. It's patchy as hell, but what is undeniable, and if you'll indulge me over the next 40 minutes or so, is that American Horror Story, starting in 2011, and particularly throughout the first five seasons, updated and reinvigorated a long dormant genre. So let's discuss how AHS brought back Haxploitation. Now, if any listeners have heard my American Horror Story recap podcast, The Next Supremes, you'll already know that I am an AHS apologist. I've been watching this goddamn show for over a decade now, and I will stick to it until one of us, Mr. Murphy or myself, lose the will to keep watching or the will to live, whatever comes first. Murphy's work has always been in direct conversation with the original hack horror films, even before he made the limited series Feud, Betty and Joan, all about the making of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and the relationship between its two stars. Throughout this episode, you'll hear from Friend of the Pod and my next Supremes co-host, film critic Clarice Lockery. If Hack Horror started off by cashing in on the name recognition of established actresses who were no longer getting the same kind of work or were perceived by Hollywood to be past their prime, who are, respectfully, Ryan, Ryan Murphy's hags and how has he updated this casting formula? I think what's, what's great about American Horror Story is that it's the the knowingness of it and to this sort of I, there's a little bit of like a reclamation to it of you know we had this high exploitation era and this genre and you know this idea that these you know some of the greatest actresses of their generation got to a point in their careers where high exploitation was sort of the only thing they could do i, I don't you know, like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, they weren't, or like Shelley Winters weren't necessarily taking these roles because that's, they really, really wanted to play these roles. <laughs> Desperately, I don't think they particularly did. Um, but you, when you get to an, uh, a Ryan Murphy project, I mean, everybody wants to do that <laughs> because you go into it with the idea that he loves giving actors a platform and I think he he is a, a director and a showrunner, a creator who loves actors and is always trying to find um, new ways to present them and to give them new avenues and new spaces to play, whether that is, you know, older actresses who, if this were the mid-century, would have only have had high exploitation as uh, a forward path in their careers here they get the opportunity to play, you know, if you look at the range of roles that Jessica Lange has played on that show, 
you know, there's powerful witches and cabaret singers <laughs> um, and, you know, sort of slightly evil housewives. Um, and yeah, and Frances Conroy playing witches, Angela Bassett playing vampire. It's these are straightforwardly powerful, glamorous, celebratory roles that are like fucked up and complicated, but they're joyous to to be and play as well. And I think, yeah, I think you see that in all his casting decisions, even outside of of casting older actors, if he's play if he's casting like a nepotism baby <laughs> or, you know, someone who is like a really famous child actor and maybe hasn't gotten great opportunities recently, he'll he'll say, you know, come on, come on into the fold. Um, or, you know, casting gay actors who never get to play gay roles and Ryan Murphy will say, Hey, come, come do the thing you haven't been allowed to do because of our fucked up industry. And I feel like that it's just sort of an extension of that. It extends onto older actresses kind of using the hagsploitation trope to kind of almost tear it apart and start it again from new. I think he's very intentional in who he casts um and i think it's you know i obviously i really want to get away from the idea that you know ryan murphy's the white knight coming in and he's like i will save you i will save you at jessica lang like that's obviously not what's happening but i think he's very good at recognizing i think he's really good at recognizing who hasn't been getting the parts they should be getting right at this moment um and i think it's less about him yeah coming in and like doing a, a quentin tarantino on john travolta and going ah here you go have a career i think it's more you know there's a lot of freedom in tv and i think when american horror story started we hadn't quite recognized that but i think he'd recognize that I think using this big, great playground of television to say, I'm going to just like collect like Pokemon, <laughs> all of the people that I, I I think are really great and should be really getting cool parts. And I'm going to bring them all onto this playground. And then because they're so incredibly talented, they get nominated for Emmys and Golden Globes and they they get noticed. And I think to some degree... I don't think it's I don't think it's I don't think he's revitalized anyone's career but I think he's certainly kind of helped redirect people's attentions because I'm trying to think like would Angela Bassett have been you know got in the Black Panther movie if she I think yes absolutely but I don't think I think it certainly helped to have had her do these incredible performances on TV as just like a little reminder of how great she is. So let's talk about some of these actresses that Murphy created really meaty and often murderous roles for. Jessica Lange was the first Pokemon that he collected. She was the star name of the first season of AHS Murder House and remained a fixture in the ensemble of actors until season four, Freak Show. 
Lang was a star of 70s and 80s Hollywood. She had briefly been a model in New York when she first started out before making her debut as Monkey Arm Candy in King Kong. But her serious, self-described real debut was as the frustrated femme fatale in The Postman Always Rings Twice, opposite Jack Nicholson, who glowingly referred to Lang as a mix between a delicate fawn and a Buick. She excelled both as a dramatic and a comedic actress, and has two Oscars to her name, one for Tootsie and another for Blue Sky. The roles she has privileged have often been women with the huge inner turmoil. Ryan Murphy himself became, in his own words, obsessed with her since he saw her play Blanche de Bois on Broadway. Years after that, he finally got to cast her in one of his projects. AHS was Lang's first starring role in television, and she was credited with the honorary and. In the first season, she plays Constance Langdon. Constance is a bitter southern belle who came to LA with dreams of being an actress and instead became a housewife-turned-murderer. She previously lived in and now lives next door to the murder house where, as you can tell from the name, a lot of murder happens. How'd you get into my house? You left your back door open. Although I have to tell you, Addie will always find a way in. She has a bug up her ass about this house, always has. You have the loveliest thing. Thank you. Have you got a dog? I, I do have a dog, yes. I run a little kennel out of my house. Doggy daycare kind of a thing. And How nice. Well, I prefer purebreds. You know, I adore the beauty of a long line, but there's always room in my home for mongrels. In the second series of the show, Lang played Sister Jude, a strict nun hiding a promiscuous past, her favorite role in her many years on the Ryan Murphy troupe. In the third season, Lang was glammed up as a bitchy head witch for AHS Coven and bid adieu to the show after the fourth season, where she portrayed a German cabaret singer turned freak show den mother in post-depression America. I've been asking myself, how is it the devil can move so freely here among the sacred icons? How does a demon wear a crucifix and not burn the flesh it inhabits? And then I realized, it's her. You're using Mary Eunice, her purity, as a shield. What if I were to slit this soft throat and release her soul to heaven? Then where would you go, foul thing? I might just jump into you. Oh, you made a big mistake coming back here. No, you made a mistake. And I'm about to send you back to the hell that made you. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Came the devil out of me. This demon it tricks you. Lang's roles on HS are often aged, glamorous women who pride themselves on their beauty, their assertiveness, and the power that they wield over men, and, well, genuinely everybody. 
While the original films of Hackhor really kind of were admonishing the lead actresses on whose name it was capitalizing for aging and for supposedly losing their power, and that was very much expressed in the way that they were made up, most of the time not always have covered some of the exceptions like Barbara Stanwyck or Debbie Reynolds who were styled glamorously, but most of them were made up and wore their hair and the kind of costumes that really downplayed their attractiveness. AHS updates this core element of exploitation, the maddening push and pull of both indicting beauty as the only value that women have going for them and castigating them for aging out of their beauty and says, fuck that. HS takes those very hags and makes them glamorous. Ryan Murphy never lets his women appear dowdy or powerless. These hags fuck. They are powerful, smart, and overtly sexual. Many times they are presented as the most desirable people in a room, much more so than some of their younger counterparts. They might be bitter about the aging process, but they are not to be ignored. And our girl Jessica Lang is a prime example of how he does this. I was not a little boy in the 70s or a little girl in the 70s. But I get the impression that she was the sexual awakening of like a lot of people. Right? <laughs> I don't know. Like King, I feel a lot of people talking about King, her and King Kong. I feel like a lot of sexuality was awakened. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, so I I think, you know, to be really reductive about her career, um, I'm going to have to be for the purposes of this point, but I think she she's a sex symbol. And I feel like American Horror Story has sort of made her a sex symbol again. I mean, she never really stopped being a sex symbol. But again, it's this like kind of reminding everybody of, God damn, Jessica <laughs> is like she's got some kind of energy. <laughs> and I think the hag exploitation element comes in where I think a lot of the the way culturally that we've been attacking ageism in the past couple of decades, I think is by through this idea of like anger and subversion and like nastiness. And you see this, you know, with the very recent, this whole thing with female rage, right? This whole trend of female rage, female rage. I feel like Jessica Lange, she was there at American Horror Story. <laughs> she was raging before it became cool. <laughs> and, and <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's this, I think it's this idea of, of, kind of undoing the expectations on women in the most like kind of violent and fuck you kind of angry way of yes I'm gonna come back onto your screens and I'm gonna be a sex symbol but I'm not gonna be the damsel in distress I'm not gonna be saintly or saint you know or um delicate about it I'm going to play a hard drinking sort of bigoted <laughs> woman who lives in a house and screams at everyone and then i'm gonna play a, a witch who's trying to kill everybody 
and I'm also going to play a, a cabaret singer who had who got a legs legs sewed off in a, a set like undermarket underground sex tape situation <laughs> like I feel like there's a real sort of like you know fuck you element to those roles I don't know of just of just kind of reclaiming the sensuality and sexuality of, of older women not by like doing a bunch of um book club movies <laughs> But by doing the female rage option of being like, fuck you, yeah, I'm going to play these like complicated, glorious, messy, um, very sexual women who are also like not really good people because that's, I mean, that's true freedom as an actor is that you just want to be able to do everything and anything. This is one of the most interesting aspects for me, right? Because on the one hand, AHS, with its many flaws as well as its many virtues, is dripping in kink and camp. It's a show that has let every single intrusive thought win. But if we look back at the Haxpotation films that have sort of covered throughout the series, a lot of them pathologize the sexuality of older women. Once they hit an undisclosed age, that might be 40 or it might be 45 or 50. Oh my God, let's not even go higher than that. Their sexuality needs to end. And if not, it is presented as something deviant or perturbed or downright evil. That's why there's a lot of narratives around... That's why there's a lot of narratives around... Mothers having illicit. Just look at. Just go back to our episode on how many mothers in high horror films have weird feelings about their sons. But I digress. One of the most refreshing and fun things that AHS does is that it doesn't actually consider any particular sexual inclination deviant? I think it's maybe there's a little, there's a couple of layers to it because, yeah, in the high exploitation, the sexuality is deviant in a pure, like, repulsion level of, you know, it's quite kind of this very conservative idea of, yes, you know, women should never be sexual but especially of a certain age oh my god disgusting and you know the idea that women lose their value and their currency as they get older so you know if they do not have youthful beauty um why are they why are they here <laughs> that's kind of what those movies are like why are they here um and so and i think because ryan murphy is obviously enamored by that genre but he's looking at it through a modern lens. I think he copies over some of the psychology of it, but internalizes it in the characters. And so I'm thinking, especially of Fiona in Coven, she's very aware of, of age and mortality and death and the idea of, yeah, of lost beauty and perhaps lost um, desire. But the, you know the modern side of it the subversion of it is to, that she's she's raging against it so she's like even more sexual and she's killing people to try to, to stay so, so i think it it kind of tries to 
acknowledge the misogyny, but then um, allow that to empower the woman because we see how she's she, she we see how she's trying to tear the house down from the inside, I guess. This is further explored through the character of the housekeeper Moira, who appears only in the first season, Murder House, where she's played by two actresses of different ages. Frances Conroy appears as the age Moira, and Alexander Breckenridge plays a younger version of her. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen or heard of Murder House, but this is revealed pretty early on in the show that Moira is a ghost and actually died at the hands of Jessica Lange's character. Was both uh, Frances Conroy and uh, Alexandra Breckenbridge, who play these two sides of the, the maid, the maid of the house, who the ghost that appears to men as very youthful and sexual and come on hunky guy let's have sex on on your bed i don't know where your wife is don't worry about it um <laughs> and then you have when women look at her she's francis conroy so she is older um and i think she has a cuz she got shot in the eye sorry i actually can't remember she got yeah, like a cloudy eye. Okay, let me just go. And you know, she got shot in the eye, so she's got the kind of cloudy eye. So there's a a sort of like, you know, anti fearing the disability of the body, kind of that kind of paranoia and hysteria and stuff. So it's kind of that's really playing into quite, I would say, quite conservative, the old conservative traditional hag exploitation ideas. I, I guess it's it's doing that to commentate on it by going, isn't it interesting that the men only see this person as, you know, a sexually available piece of meat and and women see, well, they see because I think they see the wound, they see the story and they see the narrative of the woman and what happened to her. Um so yeah, I that's an interesting one where it's I think sometimes American horror story has a little bit of a have its cake and eat it attitude to tropes. <laughs> Negative tropes and so funny where it goes, we're gonna do the trope, but then we're gonna comment on it, so it's fine. <laughs> because it is an excuse to have like a sexy young woman like grinding up on the guy. Um let's be real about it <laughs> but i think you know going back to the the domestic space i think jessica lang's character then is really interesting because i feel like a lot of her madness comes from like she is suffocated by suburbia she kind of goes insane because she i think she's quite the the more of the like stereotypical like mad housewife element to her because the mundanity of trying to to maintain very typical heteronormative life is like <laughs> too much. <laughs> Moira is perhaps a character that makes it most clear that from the very start, American Horror Story wants to have its cake and eat it too. 
It wants to center older women, but also have the hot young things. As Clarice pointed out, through this dual casting of Moira, the show gets to make a point and make fun of a stock character like the horny housekeeper at the same time as indulging in this oversexed stock character. And then there's the house, one of the recurring motifs of haxploitation, and which is the rotten beating heart of American Horror Story. Not just the first season, which revolves entirely around the underpriced Art Deco haunted gorgeousness of a house that would come up again and again through the Ryan Murphy extended universe. In the show's third season, New Orleans's very real and allegedly very haunted Lollary mansion is shown to be a house of torture and pain. We're the new owners. Who are you? I'm Constance Langdon. And this is my fucking house. In future seasons of the show, the Murphy troupe expanded to include other grand dams of cinema, like Kathy Bates and Angela Bassett, who joined AHS Coven, that's the third season, to portray, respectively, the real-life historical figures of sadistic serial killer Madame LaLaurie and New Orleans voodoo queen Mary Laveau who, incidentally, has never had a movie made about her life and 1000% deserves one, so Angela Bassett's performance was the first on-screen iteration of Mary Laveau. But back to AHS. Kathy Bates, who had made her Oscar-winning feature film debut as Annie Wilkes in Misery, was no stranger to horror from the very start of her career, and Angela Bassett had appeared in vampire flicks like Vampire in Brooklyn and Innocent Blood, and her career spans a multiplicity of genres, but AHS and her continued collaboration with the show has really cemented her as a favorite in the horror space. I would never dare to call either Kathy Bates or Angela Bassett a hag, but I'm not unaware that it is only now in the eighth episode of the series that we're talking about a black woman in a role in hag horror, or let's call it hag adjacent horror, playing one of its star roles. In the previous films that I've covered, actresses of color have only been allowed to play sensible characters, the voices of reason that cared deeply for the leading ladies and more often than not ended up murdered. Remember Maidy Norman as Elvira in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Well, exactly. AHS Coven, perhaps more than any other series of the show, is all about older women and aging. Listen, there's a lot wrong with this season, including but not limited to its unbelievably clumsy handling of racial politics. At the heart of it, though, it is a season about older women fighting each other over the power to be immortal and, by extension, unfuckwithable. So have you owned this place long? What do you think? I think when they say good black don't crack, they're not wrong. What's your secret? What's yours? Your manicure costs more than my rent. Woman like you wipes her ass with diamonds. She don't just end up walking in here for hair extensions. My, my, my. Aren't you perceptive? You know exactly who I am and what I'm capable of. 
Just like I know exactly what you are. Which I can smell the stink of it on you. In the series, Mary Laveau has made a Faustian deal with a deity called Papalegba. She sells her soul and her child in exchange for eternal youth and to preserve her powerful position in New Orleans. Madame Lollerie is shown at the very start of the series using a baby's blood as anti-aging cream. Given Lollerie's consistently sadistic treatment, torture, and murder of her staff, most of them enslaved black people, Mary Laveau gives her what she wants, eternal life. But she also buries her, so she'll have to endure eternity buried alive. Mary Laveau gives her what she wants, eternal life, promptly trapping her underground to ensure that she'll spend eternity buried alive and suffering. Centuries after the discovery of Lollary's murder, she is digged up by Fiona, still very much alive and very much still a racist, to try and barter to figure out how to live forever and be forever powerful. Now, this is getting confusing and the plot really is not the point. Coven very pointedly and deliberately leans into this obsession with beauty and youth as a poison chalice, always temporary, always slippery, always with a catch. In this series, power is cyclical and trying to hold on to it for too long ends up costing each character everything. In the holy mess that is Coven, with all the delusion and lunacy and strange plot twists and body horror, there are these three A-plus actresses playing off of each other, spewing dialogue like barbed wire, making the season a messy combination of individually phenomenal moments. It, it's not so much a great season of television as it is a curation of great gift moments. Tonight I'm gonna let the whole world in. Get a good look at me. Who's the baddest witch in town? And finally, we're back to mummy issues, which AHS has plenty of. If the hag, as I discussed in episode 5, is almost always a failed mother, either through the abuse, neglect of her children, or just a failure to be a mother, then all of Jessica Lange's characters in American Horror Story fit that bill. Constance Langdon in the first season has three children, and all three of them end up dead. And Tate, one of her kids, well, he's just not a great guy from the start dead or alive. Her character in the second season, Sister Jude, who before becoming a nun was a promiscuous and alcoholic nightclub singer, had ran over and injured a young girl while driving drunk. Fiona Good, that's her character in Coven, is the supreme of her coven of witches and a terrible, insulting, abusive and neglectful mother to her daughter Cordelia. This is total shut up, Delia. Unless you want me to spit in a third cup. She's much more concerned with maintaining her position of power than in actually running her coven and openly uses her daughter and the other young witches that are supposed to be in her ward. Coven in particular explores the taboo subject matter of a mother's resentment towards her child. While Fiona loves her daughter, 
she also despises her existence and despises the inevitability of being replaced and drained of her power and life force by a younger witch who will take her place. Within the rules of that world, the minute a new head witch, a new supreme, starts maturing, oh, that word, the previous one starts losing her life force, starts aging rapidly. And finally, in the fourth season, Jessica Lange's final full season of American Horror Story, her character Elsa Mars considers herself a sort of godmother to all the freaks in the 1930s freak show that she operates. But then again, she's also using all of them, literally selling them their experiences and their afflictions. It's interesting that there is a division between the mother who has seems to have had children perhaps against her desires um, and is in a way trying to work through a level of resentment towards them. I think especially in Coven, like there's quite a lot of power to that and a lot of um, incredible scenes between Jessica Lange and Sarah Paulson of the yeah just like the resent the resentment of mother towards child is quite like a um i would say a very powerful emotion and a bit of like a taboo emotion as well and i think part of this idea of concept subversion in american horror story i think is to explore the unspoken types of mothers and and i think the mother yeah the mother who re resents her children the mother who you know air quotes failed her children because they're, you know, she's grieving. She's grieving the loss of motherhood. That's quite, um, yeah, again, a kind of a taboo, kind of a bit of a taboo topic. And then with Asylum, again, I think there's an element of she's she almost vows herself to God because she's trying to reject motherhood at all costs. And then with Elsa Mars and Freak Show, there's a little bit of like a, a resentful kind of quite controlling manipulative mother type there where she she takes in all these people who so desperately need a parent or a caring figure a supporter in their life and she uses that need against them to exploit them for money <laughs> just kind of but again yeah just I think you know obviously in that context she's not the actual mother of these people but you know that is a type of motherhood and that is a type of again taboo motherhood the kind that we do not want to talk about the kind that we do not want to think about so i think i'm gonna tell their depraved monsters i'll tell you who the monsters are the people outside this tent in your town in all these little towns Housewives, pinched with bitterness, stupefied with boredom as they doze off in front of their laundry detergent commercials and dream of strange erotic pleasures. They have no souls. My monsters, the ones you call depraved, they are the beautiful, heroic ones. In general, the sort of American horror story attitude towards motherhood and i don't think it's a thing where it's like 
oh, and the fathers are all great. The dads are all shit as well. I think it's bad parenthood. So I think there's nothing, you know, nothing kind of like misogynistic about this. I think the show is very interested in exploring the anti like perfect nuclear family image by you know i just understanding the reality that there are shitty parents everywhere and that they are they are behind the walls of these perfect suburban homes and they are you know wearing these beautiful they look like jessica legs <laughs> beautiful and glamorous and then the door closes and the monster comes out and like that's you know that's the thing of the show right who are the real monsters you know is it the person who is traditionally the monster or is it you know the one who made them like that there's other deeply flawed mother figures peppered throughout ahs mayor winningham plays a sexually abusive mother in coven patty lupone plays another sexually abusive mother in murder house Kathy Bates' character in a hotel goes to extreme lengths, including becoming a vampire and working in a haunted hotel to patch up her fraught relationship with her son. And Chloe Sevigny plays a mother so obsessed with one of her children that she near forgets that she has a second child who's just left to her own devices most of the season. Frances Conroy plays the doting mother of a picture-perfect serial killer in Freak Show. And as I've mentioned before, Mary Laveau gave up her own baby in exchange for immortality and commits to sacrificing another babe every year to Papa Legba, literally stealing newborn children out of their mother's hands. American Horror Story, for all its many flaws, recognizes the appeal of watching these actresses be glamorous. It might not give them consistently good roles, but it gives them fun, snappy, often electric moments. Gives them great outfits, great hairdos, incredible makeup. It lets them go off. And that sensibility is obviously rooted in Ryan Murphy's veneration of the actor and actresses in particular and a certain sensibility that goes beyond camp because camp would make fun of these actresses and these roles and American Horror Story takes them all very very seriously and while I have to admit that the later seasons of American Horror Story have very much forgotten about the hag figure and those original structures that I think deeply inspired the show. It's very much privileged younger actors and actresses as well as, you know, reality TV personalities instead of well-regarded, well-respected and frankly unbelievably talented older actresses. You can't deny that those first few seasons, those first five, arguably maybe six seasons of American Horror Story, are where the legacy of Hagsportation truly got reimagined. With all of that said, though, everyone in this show needs therapy desperately, ghost or not. Thank you for listening to the Final Girls podcast and the eighth episode 
of our series on hags. Thank you to Clarice Lockery for her brilliant contribution and do go check out her own review podcast, Fade to Black. I apologize that this episode took a week longer to make. I had a book deadline to meet that took over everything. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Anna B. Demented, and you can dive into our previous seasons where we've covered witches, vampires, monsters, and teen horror in next week's episode, and it will be next week. I'll be exploring how contemporary hackspotation has turned to focus on the body more than on the psychology of the hack.